You are listening to episode 1544 of the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. If you enjoy this or any other episode of the podcast, consider making a one-time donation to the show or becoming a sustaining member by visiting the Contribute tab at thepermaculturepodcast.com to find out how you can do this and keep the show going and growing. This is part two of the roundtable recorded live at the Riverside Project outside of Charlestown, West Virginia. The panelists include Nicole Luttrell of Deeply Rooted Design, Jesse Weiner of Liberty Root Farm, Ashley Davis, a permaculture design certified herbalist who runs Meadowsweet Botanicals, and Diane Bluest, a former government employee creating her own permaculture homestead, Chicory Hill Farm. As we begin, I give thanks to Permi Kids and Jen Mendez for sponsoring this episode of the podcast and helping to make trips like this one possible. Find out more about her work on educating future generations and building community, a recurring theme in this episode, at permikids.com or by visiting the Sponsors tab at thepermaculturepodcast.com and clicking on her banner. We pick up after a short break following the first discussion and open with a conversation about permaculture as a movement. Now then, we'll into the second half of the roundtable discussion at the Riverside Project. And here we are for the second half of the roundtable discussion at the Riverside Project, outside of Charlestown, West Virginia. From the discussion that we were having in between the recording sessions, we had a lot of conversation about how permaculture has moved from its earliest days as a design system and as a land-based practice, that idea of permanent agriculture into something that is now inhabiting more and more space, the way that that word is changing and the idea of what permaculture is, is changing. And now more and more folks are seeing permaculture as the idea of developing permanent culture. But that's created a bit of a divide between whether permaculture is just a land-based practice and a system of design or whether it also involves a movement. And from the conversation around the table, it sounds like many of us feel it has both of those components. And I was wondering if you could take that idea and look at how permaculture is inhabiting more of the movement and cultural space beyond just growing food for people, as we've talked about the ideas of meditation and spiritual practice along the way. I mentioned earlier that I Native American kind of culture was has been like a kind of long-term interest to me. And I think that... Uh, you know, I said permaculture is pretty much what they were practicing and how they were living. And uh, they were very land-based in their way of life and not only in just how to grow food and provide for themselves, but in their culture, it was all tied together with the land. So there was so much of their culture that was based on like storytelling and health of your kind of inner health. And so I think that is all connected. And I'll say for, for myself, as far as how permaculture has interacted with my spirituality, that I have really come to have such a sense of, like, I am the happiest and most satisfied when I am. I just have that day where I don't have to go anywhere, and I can just go walk around in my landscape, do a little bit of this here and there, you know, tend to the garden, think about what I want to do in another area, you know, cook food for my family, and interact then with my dog and my husband, and, you know, have some family time, and it's all part of that lifestyle that is connected, I think, to the land too. So I think both are integrated, but the spirituality component is tied to how to live. So we can't just say, you know, we these are the ways to produce food and produce fibers and medicines from the land and not also have 
the other side of the culture of that we pass down how to live from generation to generation with stories and with values of family or community uh, and stewardship of land. So I would say that you can't really have one without the other. For me, permacult- my first introduction to permaculture was already one of permanent culture by the point I had taken my PDC course. That was a good chunk of what we talked about. I studied with Dave Jackie, who made a big point to talk about the design process. You know, it was all based on process, not techniques. And we spent a lot of time observing, a lot of time forgetting about what we thought we knew. And, you know, just like going back to step one. And um, I also had a, we had a guest teacher, Adam Campbell, I think is his name, who talked a lot about social permaculture. So from the very beginning, that was not what I was expecting out of my PDC, PDC course before I signed up, but that's what I got. And it's kind of been part of my framework since then. And as far as spirituality goes, the idea of connection is very spiritually satisfying for me. And that came from both permaculture, but also the study of herbalism, I think, more than anything, is really what made me feel a deeper connection with the natural world and practices like just sitting with a plant and feeling a plant with your felt senses and, again, forgetting what you know and doing these deep observation practices was really spiritually fulfilling for me at that time. I think that the whole way of looking at the world that both permaculture and holistic medicine have presented to me are, in essence, my spiritual core. You know, that's my spiritual foundation. I don't really have allegiance to any one philosophy, but both of those provide a framework for deeply connecting with the natural world, trusting that there is something greater than myself out there, you know, that the there is a life force behind everything that I can connect to and access and play with. And then again, that idea of learning to let go and learning how to inhabit the world in, a, in an unimposing kind of way and how to co-create things and how to be humbled. That's all part of the way that I approach the world now, and a huge part of that comes from my, my permaculture training and, and just applying some of those principles, reminding myself to be more adaptable and respond to change and value diversity and keep it small. Those, are, those aren't necessarily spiritual principles, but I think if you apply them in a spiritual way, they can, they can be pretty profound. I guess I don't spend a lot of time thinking uh, actively about spiritualism, and I probably should spend more, but I've noticed as I've been on this journey of of leaving Reston and coming here and and getting this homestead started, it's been very tough. It was was really difficult to move. Um, It was really difficult to build a house, even though I didn't build it with my own little fingers. But through all of this, I have just become much more centered and much calmer. And I was speaking with my parents the other day, and mom said, well, doesn't that upset you? You know, there's a leak in the basement. And aren't you upset about that? You know, there was a time when you would have been really upset about that. And I said, well, you know, there's nothing I can do about it. (laughs) 
there's absolutely nothing I can do about that leak. Other people are going to take care of it. And, you know, that's kind of how things are going now for me. So it's, I'm, I'm in a much better place. And I think that's because of permaculture. And as far as the movement, yes, I think it has to be a movement. Um, we've got to come together. Um, and even if, if we're just a little movement here in Jefferson County, because Again, I, I don't want to be a doom and gloomer, but the, the problems that are facing us are so severe and so critical, and part of the severity of it is the fact that so many people don't see these problems. Um, you know, I think probably everybody in this room uh, is here because they are concerned about the direction of the earth and the world, and um, if we don't come together, we're not going to solve them. So we absolutely have to have this community i think absolutely like the spiritual and community aspect cannot be segregated from permaculture as a whole but i think we have to be realistic that one is a lot easier to convey and teach other people it's really easy to teach somebody how to incorporate a couple other plants into their sort of original monoculture uh, much more so than it is to teach somebody the value of you know sitting at a table when you eat and you know not having your cell phone out you know while you're eating or whatever in a lot of ways, that's where we've, we're, I think we're a lot further away from sort of positive cultural and spiritual action than we are from positive, you know, physical, like agricultural aspects. And like Nicole, I've always been uh, really interested in learning about sort of individual indigenous cultures and how they lived on their land, you know, both po positively and negatively. And also sort of going back to this idea of, you know, when the community, the entire community was involved in in the processing of food, collecting food, whether it was hunter-gatherers or moving more into agrarian. Um, this past spring, I did a little bit of research on the Blackfoot tribe outside of Canada towards the West Coast, and it was really interesting to read about the effect of industrial meat production on the ways of life of many individual tribes in that area who relied on buffalo. And that it really was, we think of like colonization as this, you know, really just taking land, but in a lot of ways it's sort of this like imposition of culture and not even just culture like religion but culture you know the way people interact with food so one of the first things that happened was they came in and put up these meat production plants that were some of the first factory farmed you know cattle production uh, in the country and then encouraged a lot of the native cultures in the area to to work in these plants and originally both women and men were very involved in like on the spot processing of like buffalo and bison um, and it was very much these sort of long-term generational processes of being involved in the entire life cycle. So then they only allowed men to work in, in the factories. So now it was, women were completely now disconnected from the entire process of food. But I think through things, very simple actions, like bringing somebody to the farmer's market with you and like going to like pick out some vegetables and like maybe some local meat, you know, even if you had no hand in actual growing of it and then like going home and like drinking some wine, like making food with somebody, there are very few people that would not enjoy doing that. And I think people have it. People who aren't involved in permaculture maybe have it in their head that like, it's going to be a lot of work to be involved. But I think some of the best, the best experiences I've had is like bringing people out to Liberty Root, the farm that I'm working at. And just like at the end of the day, after like, you know, people have helped out with a little bit of working, we've made some food, and then just sitting around the fire. I think everybody here has probably experienced that moment of like sitting around the campfire and like staring into the fire. There's a reason that that comes like so naturally to us. Like we've been doing that for a long, long, long time, thousands of years. So I think those like creating opportunities for more of those dialogues to revolve around just sort of naturally 
natural activities. I think that's one of the best opportunities for getting people involved. With that idea of getting people involved, a question that came in over Twitter was from Ainan Ita. What are some ways permaculture and education around permaculture are being made accessible to all? You've all had different experiences here in this region of the country than I've had, and I'm wondering what insight you might have into what you've seen and experienced here. Uh, I think that it's not necessarily being really brought out there to everyone, but I do think that it's kind of starting to go in that direction. There are definitely some people doing stuff in schools. I think that's an important thing. I know about a couple people doing kind of like little food forests and community gardens with schools. So that really has the potential to kind of get out there to just like the average young person. Um, And I think that beyond that, we are at a little bit of a barrier point where we've already gotten the easiest people in who, so we kind of have to get past that point, past like the, the choir or whatever, and figure out a way to like branch out more. And it kind of relates to what Jesse was saying, that I think the way to do that is less on a, you know, this is permaculture and kind of you know, this is like the practices and, and less on that kind of formal sense and more on just uh, trying to connect with people through just the daily activities that everyone needs to do, but in like a more healthy way, like, you know, instead of rushing home after work and, you know, having takeout dinner and going to bed and doing it all over again, um, trying to get people you know, just to enjoy eating food and and hanging out with the people who live near them and uh, other out. So... I would say that would be maybe be, I think, the next step towards getting more people involved is just building those connections. When I hear that question, I maybe put my own experience and, and values onto it, but it seems to me that the caller may have been talking about all levels of society. And one of the things that I've been concerned about for a number of years and and we worked on this in in Reston, was how do we get sustainability, and in this case permaculture, to the people that can really use it. And those are, in our society, I think some of the most disadvantaged people among us. I think one of the things that that we can all do is to reach out to organizations that are established and working with that segment of our society, which is sadly growing by leaps and bounds um, because of income inequality and and other structural issues that have to be addressed. But, you know, I've finally come to the conclusion in my own life I can't address all those issues, but I can work with the organizations that are working with the people that are disadvantaged and and bring um, everything to them, um, you know, food preservation, you know, how, how to clean your house with green cleaning products that you make at home, uh, and also permaculture. And so one of the things that I hope might work out here in Jefferson County, we have the Jefferson County uh, Community Ministries, and they are doing some really exciting work with things like thinking about worker-owned cooperatives. And if something like that were to come to pass, then they would have people who could come out and work with me on the on the farm, and I could teach them and, you know, give them some income. But those are those are the types of things that I think we ought to be looking for all of those opportunities as practitioners of permaculture to spread the word and, and to really help people that may not be able to help themselves as readily as we can. The word accessibility stood out to me in that question as well, um, which makes me think of economic availability to things like like organic food and education 
So um, permaculture design courses have typically been pretty expensive. I think there's a one that Jeff Lawton is offering. He's offered the first free online PDC course. I haven't personally looked into it, so I can't really speak to that, but I think that's really exciting for people who are interested in the educational aspect of permaculture. Um, but then there's also the the question of accessibility to healthy food and land and, and that kind of thing, Nat natural healthy housing, is not one that I have much experience with. I don't work with underserved populations at all in Shepherdstown. I mean, I, I know there are lower income people in Jefferson County, but it's just not really part of my daily experience. And it does raise a concern that I've been struggling with recently, which is the, the issue of land ownership. It would be really great to, to have some kind of model, kind of community food forest. That's a dream I have for this, for this region. And it's something that was brought up by a group that I'm a, Diane and I and a number of us in this room are a part of called Sustainable Shepherdstown. We've been trying to create a community food forest, but that project's kind of been put on hold. Um, land and resources are always an issue, and I don't really know how to answer that. Right now, the whole system, the way that this country is designed, is that those who have money have access to land, and sometimes those people can be very generous and give grants, and sometimes there are scholarships available, and sometimes we can be really creative and pull resources and have these cooperative models, but um, it's definitely a challenge. I don't know that I have an answer. And from my experiences, most of the place where there has been growth in accessibility to permaculture education has been primarily online which again creates a digital divide between those who have access and those who don't. And many of the videos that you have available to you and elsewhere take up a lot of bandwidth. And as we become a more mobile society, especially in the United States, you don't have a lot of bandwidth with mobile access. And it's easy to chew through that kind of stuff, and then it becomes even more expensive than through a landline. And many of the communities in central Pennsylvania you have to physically go to in order to engage. And regretfully, in many of those environments, there are spaces where people don't want to go. Even though I've done work with a local nonprofit that is reaching into those spaces, it's still a struggle because of cultural and systemic issues that have existed for hundreds of years about ideas of urban farming and whether or not people want to engage in that. Do you have any other thoughts to add to this section of the conversation before we open the floor to questions? Well, I guess I would, I would add that I definitely fall into that low-income category. I, as a self-employed herbalist and farmer, fall way below the poverty line. And currently, during this transitional time for me, I there have been several times in the last month where my bank account equaled zero dollars, and I don't know how I'm going to put gas in my car or buy food the following week. And it definitely forces you to be really creative. And I'm fortunate enough to have a, a lot of friends and re access to other resources and you know it's all working out just fine I'm not I'm not trying to complain at all but but I think there's a lot of opportunity there you know again going back to the the problem is the solution or the solution is inherent in the problem if accessibility to land or or food is a problem like that problem is a pressure cooker and out of that pressure comes all kinds of creative ways to address that problem and um, I think having community, having smaller scale things, meetup groups, 
perma blitzes, although those might be inaccessible for people who don't have cars, you know, it depends on the situation and there are all kinds of ways that we can respond to address that problem. But I think the the exciting part of that being a problem is that there's so much potential in that problem and um, we are all going to respond to that differently. There's the classic permaculture answer of it depends to any question and that it depends on the cultural context, the space that someone inhabits that making permaculture more accessible or creating accessibility within permaculture depends on the space where we each find ourselves and the communities that we're in and how we can connect with and address those questions on the ground. That question brings to my mind a couple different episodes where specifically the way that the individuals were connecting was because they had slowed down their life to a degree where when they needed a resource they often had to go to their neighbor to start to figure out where the resource was going to be. And through that process of actually dialoguing and seeing your neighbor face to face, they were starting to, I mean, that's, that's where you would start to open up conversations about whatever you're doing or whatever you're thinking. And I think another Another individual had said that there, I think it was the group in Kentucky, that they had a Sunday coffee where anyone was invited to come over. And so through the question that you had asked or that someone had asked, it seems like that that's where things would really start to spread is it's one person to the one person on one spot to the next person on their spot. And it's bridging the real life day-to-day needs and happenings and and the weather and the uh like through through that bridge where you start to actually see some sort of actual change in relationships so it's kind of it's funny that this conversation i feel like has revolved around like the community of of what you know permaculture being a real communal thing so yeah that's what i would think about that question at least it comes back to something that we've touched on repeatedly throughout the conversation about that need to build community whether it's with just a handful of permaculture practitioners or with a broader network of our neighbors and friends in the space that we live in though I feel like that's kind of a cheating answer for me because it's a bias that I have and that I've been pushing the conversation towards is about that need to build community as kind of a principle for expanding permaculture. Have you proposed adding that to the principle list of principles yet? I'll, I'll pencil in number 13 when I get home and put that out on the podcast. I think Ben Weiss and Wilson, what's his last Alvarez. name? Yeah. Didn't they come up with the 13th principle? They had a 13th and then they added more to it in another list that I saw, but I don't know that they've formalized and released that yet. Okay. I guess I would add that, I would just like stress the importance of I think like permaculture as a movement definitely has a responsibility to sort of reach out to individual groups, especially those who have been disenfranchised, et cetera. But it's important to realize that, you know, there are groups that are already doing that without a permaculture spin. And that sometimes the best way to, you know, spread information and to build community is not necessarily, you know, us people who are involved in permaculture directly doing it, but finding those nodes, sort of like what you're saying, finding those nodes of interaction and influencing those people. So like, 
working with groups who are already doing a whole lot with like urban agriculture, you know, school gardens and stuff and applying that same. I can't tell you the number of school gardens that I've seen that have like start off with like money and resources and labor and then they use the same organic material in the bed for three years. Now the bed won't produce anything. So people stop tending to it. And now there's tons of gardens filled with weeds. Whereas if, you know, we speak to the people who are in charge with those types of activities and sort of preach to them about permaculture, then it goes longer than, you know, necessarily reaching out directly to the individuals. That also brings up the idea, the importance of networking and and kind of sharing the burden, but also sharing resources and kind of creating these little polycultures of organizations or polycultures of businesses. I don't know if there, there must be a word for it that I'm not familiar with, but I'm thinking of an article that I read that was written by uh, Suzanne Lacey, who's an art critic. She was talking about these multi-use centers. Have you heard of those? And um, this one, I think, was maybe in St. Paul or something, but kind of an, an artist collective space with a bike shop, and I can't remember everything else that was in there, but this symbiotic relationship of businesses in one building. And another example would be something like a farmer's... Maybe it was Eric Tonsmeyer talking about this group in Holyoke, some vegetable farmers, somebody who had a pig roasting business. There was this little hub of five businesses, and they were arranged in such a way that the waste of one fed another. And you know, I think that can definitely be applied to the level of community and social permaculture and economic per- permaculture. That's what permaculture really brings I think that's what it has to offer to this movement coming together in general is how do we come together really consciously and design ourselves in these little well-crafted hubs so that we produce no waste and that we are all mutually benefiting one another. Barbara Kingsolver in Animal Vegetable Miracle, I know towards the end speaks about a cooperative, which I think is, I want to say Virginia, and it was basically a collection of small farms. And I'm not sure if they had it as intricate as like waste going from one farm to to another but I know they sort of used it as a way of like I think they were able to get like certified organic for the cooperative as a whole as opposed to for an individual farm and then the idea of like food co-ops and working into that is definitely a lot of possibilities. There's a a co-op, a farmer's co-op. It's it's basically a year-round farmer's market, indoor farmer's market in Worcester, Ohio called I think it's called Local Roots, but it started off as a way for to support the farming community. And, you know, there was a building made available. I don't know how they made it available, but the farmers could bring their produce, and I think it was a 5% charge. So basically, they were getting 95% of the retail cost of their produce, but it's morphed into, it's still the farmer's market, but it's spun off a cafe that is in the same building as the indoor farmer's market. Uh, So there are all kinds of models of of things like this out there. Michael Schumann has a number of uh, examples in in his writings, um, Small Mart Revolution and Local Dollars, Local Cents. But basically it's a cooperative model where everybody contributes something and you all take away something. I was able to pull up Local Roots Worcester and they have a cafe and it looks like they're doing some vermiculture workshops and all kinds of things going on. That could be a model for someone who wanted to reach out and find out more information. I'm hoping that the Charlestown Farmer's Market will morph into that. They're trying to do that. So we'll see. 
we've been talking a bunch, I guess, during our break, but also during both sections about sort of how permaculture is broadening out as a movement and then also about accessibility. And I think, I mean, maybe this is too optimistic or too broad a view, but I think there's a lot of trends right now that on the surface have no actual relation to permaculture, like the sharing economy is sort of a big buzzword right now. Um, and whether that's sort of the big mainstream lightning rods like Uber or smaller, more personal things. I think all of those trends right now are to some extent about community and a different model of economics. And I think those things do fit into sort of a broader new permaculture. And likewise, we talked about the local food movement. I was teaching in an inner city school in D.C. for the past few years and really saw a lot of progress happening in accessibility with farmers markets, you know, offering double for the SNAP, the doubling programs um, at a lot of the farmers markets in D.C. So many of the schools have gardens in them now. And these are sort of good gateways to get communities that might right now not have a lot of accessibility to permaculture, at least getting more in touch with where food is coming from and that process. And so I guess I'm wondering if other people agree that this is sort of all part of a larger movement, if there's hope in that and sort of what permaculture's role is in connecting maybe some of these trends right now. Well, I would say that there's an opportunity to piggyback onto a lot of other successful movements and like to partner with organizations to integrate different movements together. I think like the economic aspect is super becoming really like what you're mentioning about sharing economy, bartering systems and things like that. Um, I think are another kind of future aspect. I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to be able to connect with other groups, but within the permaculture community as a whole is that we need to find the people who are already in the movement who are good at that. I know that I've talked in front of some permaculture design courses about doing policy work and going before local government to discuss issues, and I've never seen so many people kind of want to shy away from something and crawl under the table so quickly. I know that there are people out there who have studied political science and who are lawyers and others who also know permaculture, but where are they and what are they doing now? Is it that they've retired and gone to ground and now they're farming? They don't want to do that anymore? Or is it just that we need to find them and connect with them and ask them to step up and fill that space again? That comes back to utilizing all skills available and that we can't all just be based on growing food, that we need to find the people who are interested and have the same passion and the same vision, but have the skill set to you know, make it a broader movement. It's like sharing the heart of of certain of the essence of like what permaculture is and like something about learning and growing in the concept and and just in all the different areas of permaculture it's like once you're with someone else who's also wanting to follow that path is it's like I think powerful in its own weird way yeah so it seems like just sharing like the heart of that is leads somewhere like connecting and then and then it grows so it's like that's the basis i think maybe i'll add on like in the little town where i live in thermont i've only been there since the winter it's been interesting to kind of get a feel for what's going on as far as the people who kind of you know run the town um how they're trying to do like little community events and the farmer's market's only like two years old and it's really small and you know, I've gone to some of the events and, you know, some people come, but I know there's so many more people who live in this town, but like they live in these little suburban developments and they probably drive to Frederick or drive somewhere between Frederick and DC to go to work. 
and then they have such long commutes and like they come home and like they're not really like living like in like they live in they sleep in Thermont but so it's kind of the question of like I, I almost want my focus to be on one day like with being having a farm that's like right in the town how can we really like integrate ourselves into this town and um, I think maybe it the first step is getting to know better the people who already are trying to just have a nice like downtown like Thermont is part of the Main Street program in Maryland and uh, I think that maybe in, in anywhere that anyone lives they can find those people who are already trying to kind of get people to form a community and like just piggyback off of what they're doing but add your own element because I, I'm, I've found like the people I've talked to, like the mayor, the commissioners are really excited about like that these young people bought this farm and they like really want us to be farmers market and they want us to like bring something more exciting to the town. So I think maybe that's like a scale I can swallow. That's a scale that I feel like I can really actually make a difference when I sometimes when I'm like thinking of policy and thinking of all that, it's like that's I don't even know how to begin with that. So. I think that's sort of my vision of how I maybe can actually have that kind of impact. One of the things that I've encountered recently that it just keeps worming its way through my brain is this idea of the blap that someone brought up to me. And it's Brooklyn, Boulder, Los Angeles, Asheville, and Portland. And that that seems to be the place where so many people are going, I want community. I know where there's a community. I'm going to move there. But to really do this kind of work that we need to inhabit the space that we live in we have to have a sense of place wherever we find ourselves because that's where we're going to make the big difference if someone feels that they need to go somewhere then please do because then you can go somewhere where you're going to feel needed and useful and that's important too but if you found a place that you love whether it's because it's the land that you live on or just the pizza shop on the corner you want to be able to keep walking down there and eating there then to make those connections that matter and begin to find out more about where it is that you live and how you can become a part of that community and make a difference, whether that is policy or just giving people some great food from your farm. One of my favorite writers is um, Sharon Astick. I don't know if anybody has read her. Um, she comes out of the, the peak oil movement. Um, and her latest book is called Making Home. And that's exactly what her premise is, that we need to make a sustainable home, homestead, where we are, and that we need to build very strong communities. She is um, not a believer in, you know, some aspects of the peak oil movement go to survivalism and and preppers and guns and, you know, huge stores of food. That's not what she does. She said if you don't if if you don't have a community that is resilient and able to provide for itself you will never be safe, you will never be cared for, uh, no matter how many guns and bullets you have, because there are always going to be more people coming to take what you have if you are hoarding things and you haven't built this community where everybody has enough. And I, I think that's a very valuable thing for us to think about and to act on. I love that um, using the word home as kind of the final word or the connection because that's really what economy economics and ecology are rooted in you know as the study of home and how do we find our place in this world which is our home how do we live here in a light way you know how do we lighten our impact how do we have a leave a positive 
impact behind, but also how do we have a meaningful experience while we're here? And I, I think permaculture is one is just one of many systems that kind of address both sides. And, and that is what we've been kind of talking about this entire time is permaculture for many years was focused on the living lightly part and now is coming back around to them. How do we find more meaning within that piece? And I think the word home perfectly summarizes that. And so ends the second roundtable recorded at the Riverside Project outside of Charlestown, West Virginia. I would like to thank Emma Huvos for setting up this event, inviting the panelists, and hosting, along with her partner Greg, at her family farm. Visit theriversideproject.com to learn more about her work to move the farm more towards permaculture, and to check the calendar for any upcoming events. Opportunities like this trip to West Virginia depend on the support of listeners and the sponsorship of people doing good work, like Jen Mendez of permikids.com. In addition to her own podcasts that explore the topics of children, permaculture, and education, which I recommend you check out if your life involves any of these three subjects, she also offers a number of courses on educational design, an ongoing series of edge alliances, topical webinars with featured guests, and personal consultations. Recently, she edited a series of electronic campfires in cooperation with Dr. David Blumenkrantz and the Center for Youth and Community that expand on the recent conversation we had on youth and community development and rites of passage. Find out more at permikids.com or by following the links in the show notes. Should you decide to join in on any of these courses or other offerings, know that Jen extended a discount of 10% to Patreon supporters. Leaving this roundtable and getting to sit down with everyone and talk about permaculture at the potluck afterwards left me reminded of the trip to visit with Eric Pirro and other members of the push in Kentucky and the need to spend time with people in order to create intimacy and community. For that day in West Virginia, as myself and the other participants sat around and talked, we bonded through the common interest in permaculture and a desire to create the world made possible by systemic design. This idea of building trust, intimacy, and community is one that I've been digging into for the past several months and is the only way I see that we can create the opportunities necessary to face the issues that lead humanity ever closer to crisis. Solutions exist to all the technical problems we face over the next century, including climate change, energy, food, transportation, all of it, every last one, right now with off-the-shelf technologies, policies, and knowledge. The only thing we lack, however, is the social and political capital to make it happen. To change all of that, will you join me? Wherever you are at, whatever your choices may be for yourself and your descendants, starting today, will you live with intent to broaden your community, to get to know others, so that together we can move closer to creating the world that each of us wants to live in? If you're politically minded, Will you step up and run for office? If you work in the public sector, will you guide decisions and policies so that they come from a permaculture perspective? If you own a business, will you move your company structure and rules to align with the ethics of permaculture? In your day-to-day -day life, whatever you do, will you work on reducing the impacts of your lifestyle so that you can be an example for others? There's a tipping point when change occurs. And as we engage and get involved, we get ever closer to that point. We all have a role in creating a bountiful world. If there's any way I can assist you on taking action in your own life, let me know. Call 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or you can drop something in the mail, the Permaculture Podcast, 
P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Also, if you or anyone else you know is interested in hosting a roundtable like this one in your city or at your homestead, get in touch and we can talk about the possibility. From here, the next episode on October 29. From here, the next episode on October 29th is with Lisa Rose, author of Midwest Foraging. And then on November 5th, Peter Michael Bauer returns to discuss human versus conservation rewilding. Until the next time, take care of Earth, yourself, and each other. <laughs>